0: Two years back, Donald Trump picked up the phone to make a sales pitch. He was selling an idea. The idea was that he should still be president. And the people he was trying to convince lived 600 miles away in Fulton County, Georgia.
1: So, Mr. President, I'll I'll turn it over to you.
0: They were also recording.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Hello, Brad and Ryan and everybody. We appreciate the time and the call.
0: When this audio got leaked, Tamar Hallerman of the Atlanta Journal Constitution was shocked. She'd just wrapped up a tour as a White House correspondent. She was back in Atlanta trying to switch beats. But this tape derailed her
2: plans. It was a pretty extraordinary moment. I don't think I quite knew how significant it was going to be at the time
0: This call was placed a few days before the riot on January 6th. Trump was still fighting to stay in office. And the way he saw it, There were just a few people standing in the way of that goal, all of them elections
1: officials, who
0: were stubbornly refusing to find the votes he needed. —
1: If we could just go over some of the numbers, I think it's pretty clear that we won. We won very substantially, uh, Georgia. Uh, You even see it by rally size, frankly. —
0: One of those officials was Georgia's secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger. —
1: I don't know. Look, Brad, I gotta get — I have to find — 12,000 votes, and I have them times a lot, and therefore I won the state.
0: But on this call, Raffensperger barely gets a word in edgewise.
1: And they're really wrong, Brad, and, and I know this phone call's going nowhere other than, other than ultimately, you know. It, look, ultimately, I win, okay? Because...
2: It's an hour long. Yes, it is really long, and just a jaw-dropping piece of audio. And there were folks at the time who were saying this could potentially be criminal. But frankly, at that point, as somebody who had covered Trump for many years, I was thinking, well, how many times have we heard that? And we hadn't seen much action, especially legally.
0: But there was something different this time because Fulton County, Georgia, had a brand new district attorney. Within days, she'd announced her intent to investigate.
1: Breaking news. The New York Times is just reporting that prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, have launched a criminal investigation into former President Trump's January phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State. Remember the one where he told... The district attorney
0: for Fulton County says she wants a special grand jury to help her investigation into alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election.
2: Are you worried that former President Trump could somehow be able to avoid, delay, you know, what's going on with your investigation? No. Why is that? What gives you that confidence? This is a criminal investigation. We're not here playing a game. I plan
0: to use um, the power of the law. We are all citizens. Now, this prosecutor, Fannie Willis, she's announced that charges in her case could be imminent. The grand jury she convened has already written up their final report. For tomorrow, the only question is when it will become public.
2: You know, my routine for the last couple of weeks, my life has been refreshing the court docket an embarrassing amount of times <laughs> every couple of minutes. Unfortunately, there's so many different scenarios, so many different rumors now about what is happening that it's definitely made the last couple of weeks a little nutty for me personally.
0: Today on the show, we'll go through a few of these scenarios and ask how a local prosecutor in Georgia set her sights on the former president in the first place. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Go to CloudOptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's CloudOptimizer.com. This investigation of Donald Trump and the Republican leaders who supported him would not exist without one person, Fonnie Willis. Fonnie Willis had just been sworn in as district attorney when Trump placed this call to Georgia's Secretary of State. So I asked Tamar Hollerman to go way back and
2: explain exactly who Fonnie Willis is to help me figure out what drives her. Well, she is a longtime prosecutor in Fulton County. She worked in the DA's office for about 17 years. By the time she announced she was going to run, she also served as a a judge for a little bit, a, a defense attorney. And she was primarily known as the lead prosecutor back in 2014. There was a really prominent historical case here. My newspaper helped uncover this, but a giant scandal where there were dozens of teachers and educators and administrators in the Atlanta public school system who were systematically changing test answers and standardized tests for their students. To make the schools look better? Exactly. Exactly. And the DA's office decides to to prosecute. They end up indicting dozens of teachers, and they end up going to to court and going after about a dozen educators, administrators, including a woman who was the superintendent of the year. And they didn't just charge them
0: individually, right? They charged them with racketeering charges.
2: Exactly. A very novel strategy, of course, racketeering, very famous tool for going after the mafia, the five families in New York City. But yes, they they used that to go after educators in the Atlanta public school system. And it was seen as shocking, especially in more African-American parts of town that were saying, you know, you're going after Black teachers. What are you doing? Because Fannie Willis is Black herself. Yes, and she was saying, Fannie Willis was saying, look, you are... Harming these black students who aren't getting access to the remedial courses that they may need because you're changing their test scores to help your school system. And so she was able to secure convictions for, I believe it was 11 or 12 educators. Folks went to jail for it. It still is a very controversial case in some corners of the black community, and the DA still sticks by her handling of it. So she was primarily known for that.
0: So this interesting. It's like she's known for doing something that wasn't necessarily popular, especially. Among some core members of her constituency, but then also looking at a problem and seeing it not just as an individual, but systemically.
2: Yeah, exactly. And kind of sticking by her interpretation of things. And then to to top it off, she was the woman who decided to challenge her old boss. Paul Howard had been in office for six terms, more than 20 years. And by the time that she challenged him for in 2020, he was very much wounded. His office was known as, as quite a dysfunctional pay- place. He was facing lawsuits, you know, Me Too lawsuits, ethics inquiries. He was in all sorts of hot water. And, you know, Fannie Willis challenged him and she won overwhelmingly with something like 75% of the vote so she absolutely crushed him and kind of came in with with this mandate wanting to help remake this office where morale had been really down for many years and in the meantime she gets elected at a you know during the the covid pandemic when there's thousands of criminal cases that are in a backlog so she has her work cut out for her absolutely and not only that but her predecessor wasn't talking to her after she got elected and so she she comes in to boxes and boxes of file cabinets stacked all the way to the ceiling Um, thousands and thousands of cases some of them years old that hadn't been closed or hadn't been properly filed and so she gets in just completely i think overwhelmed by the task at hand and okay i have some work to do and on top of that you know it's day 2 or 3 on the job after she's been sworn in turns on the television and she's seeing wall to wall coverage on cable news networks of this leaked phone call between Donald Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger.
0: President Trump doubling down on claims of voter fraud in Georgia and he's heard on the phone asking Georgia Secretary of State to find votes to overturn our election. The 1-hour phone call How quickly did she show an interest in investigating this phone call between President Trump and Brad Raffensberger. And, and did she immediately say what she would be investigating the president and his associates
2: for? So she didn't announce publicly that she was going to be investigating this phone call until maybe mid-February of 2021, so almost six weeks after that phone call occurred. But in interviews with her since then, I've talked to her about when she was interested in that call, and she said pretty much immediately when she saw that, you know, she, she mentioned almost praying that Secretary of State Raffensperger lived in Macon. Oh, she was praying he was somewhere else,
0: so it, like, wasn't her jurisdiction. Almost,
2: exactly, just because she knew it was going to be this can of worms and that she was going to have to investigate it.
0: As soon as Willis started looking into this case, it was clear that she was looking to use the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. It's a law designed to impose harsh penalties on organized crime. It's the same law Willis
2: used in her controversial case against those Atlanta public school teachers. We knew instantly that she was interested in RICO because the way that the DA announced this criminal investigation, she sent letters to Governor Kemp, to Attorney General Chris Carr, to Brad Raffensperger, basically telling them, I have opened up a criminal investigation. Please conserve evidence, documents, any, any communication you might have had with the Trump campaign because I am interested in that. And in that letter, she laid out a half dozen state laws that she thinks might have been broken. And among them was racketeering. And that was pretty darn stunning. We're talking about the president of the United States and his campaign. We're not talking about mob bosses planning a murder. And so I think that really was very striking to folks, especially those who weren't familiar with this Atlanta public school case. But you're absolutely right, Mary. This is something that. The DA has kind of made her calling card during her tenure here. And she mentions frequently, sometimes when she's not even asked in interviews, she's like, I'm very comfortable with RICO. I know how to use it. Many prosecutors are scared of it. It's a very kind of complicated charge with lots of moving pieces. You have to kind of craft a narrative that shows there was a pattern of racketeering activity. And I think some prosecutors are scared of it. But she says... I'm not. I know how to do it. She very quickly hires an attorney in Atlanta who's a nationally recognized expert in racketeering. She showed early on she's not scared of it at all.
0: Hmm. Eventually, Fannie Willis settled on calling a special grand jury. I don't know if this is something that's particular to Georgia, but it does seem different than sort of the normal investigative process. Can you just lay out how this special grand jury operates? It's like two dozen people, right?
2: They're rare in Georgia. They're not unique to Georgia, but they are rare. And as I've spoken with legal analysts about why she wanted, why that avenue kind of helped her, they mentioned a couple things to me. The first is that they can sit and meet for as long as prosecutors need. In Fulton County, Grand juries, regular grand juries, meet for two months at a time, and then they disband. And like I said, they hear dozens of cases on a bazillion different issues. Special grand juries can meet for as long as prosecutors need, so months, longer. And they focus on a single issue, which is really helpful for prosecutors in really wonky, involved cases. And it's helpful to them because they don't have to keep explaining their case to a new group of jurors every two months. They can come back to the same panel and say, hey, remember what we talked about three months ago? Well, we now need to subpoena this other person. It kind of saves them time and energy. And it also gives jurors some expertise as they build up knowledge about this.
0: But the special grand jury can't indict people. So that adds like another layer, right? So so it's like there's an advantage of they're going to be there as long as you need them. But the disadvantage is if you find something worth investigating, they're kind of just telling you to go investigate them and charge them.
2: Exactly. And in my understanding, that's unique to Georgia and that special grand juries here cannot issue indictments. So yeah, that's a a clear disadvantage of a special grand jury. But what they can do is author a final report where they can recommend that prosecutors do something. They could say, based on what we've learned we rec- we don't recommend any criminal charges. We don't think a crime has occurred, and, and we don't think there's enough to to indict a person. Or they could say we absolutely think there's enough to indict a person. Go do that. In a way that gives the
0: prosecutor cover for whatever they decide. Like if, if if you're making a big decision, like am I going to issue an indictment against the former president of the United States? It helps to have 23 people, regular folks saying, we've heard the evidence and we think that's a good idea.
2: Absolutely. That's one of the biggest upsides of having a special grand jury is that it gives you political cover. And remember, Fannie Willis is a Democrat. She's on the ballot next year in 2024. She's investigating all Republicans. Donald Trump, these uh, these alternate Republican electors. It looks very partisan on its face. So it certainly could help her, the DA, To say, hey, this isn't me with my partisan hat on. A group of Fulton County residents, you know, teachers, doctors, construction workers, they were the ones who recommended this. And I am just following their will.
0: After the break, what is it about that White House phone call that could be criminal? When the special grand jury first convened, back in May, Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the guy who received that infamous phone call from Trump, he was the first witness called to the stand. Tamar says that shows just how crucial this conversation is to the entire investigation. So I asked her to break down for me. What exactly is it
2: about this phone call that could be against the law? There's a couple different things that that folks are really hung up on. The first is the specific number of votes that the the former president keeps harping on. He says, I need to find 11,780 votes. I just want to
1: find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. And that's
2: exactly one more vote than what Joe Biden won Georgia by in 2020. So it's not like he said, it's not like he picked some number out of thin air,
0: or like it would be nice to find some more votes. He's like, no, 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 find this number so I win.
2: Exactly, exactly. The verbiage that he uses when he starts saying, you know, if you don't look into this, Brad Raffensperger, there's a lot of folks who are going to be really upset with you. It's a risk to you and your lawyer, Ryan Germany.
1: That's a criminal offense, and and
2: you know you can't let that happen. That's that's a big risk. To you and to Ryan, your lawyers, that's a big risk. And that's where some of the legal experts I look to say, that's a threat. That's, you know, even a not so veiled threat.
0: Yeah. I mean, Raffensberger wrote a book in which he addressed this phone call and and annotated it a little bit with like what he was thinking as it was taking place. I know we don't know what Raffensberger told the grand jury, but what did his book tell you about what was going through his mind as this conversation was going on? And I mean, obviously he thought it was important enough that he recorded it.
2: Yeah. And he knew to kind of be ready to push back in real time, but you're right, Mary, he writes in this book that he did feel threatened by that comment. And of course the former president commands, you know, millions of people who feel fervently that, you know, in, in what he believes in that he's under attack by the media, by the deep state. And so, you know the the secretary of state had already been attacked in the aftermath of the election by supporters of the president who felt like there was immense fraud going on in Georgia his his wife had gotten sexualized death threats random poll workers here had gotten death threats so he he knew kind of the the force that Donald Trump had and so i think he he was scared a little bit of of what the president was telling him but there's also folks i talk to who say You know, looking at that phone call alone, there's not enough to indict the former president off this. There's plenty of people who say, yes, there is. But there's some folks who say, find is a vague enough word. What does find mean? It's not an order, you mean? Some folks say that Trump was arguing, I know that there's fraud. I'm not asking you to create ballots out of thin air, but to find fraud that already exists. So just just look around more and, and see if there's this fraud. So to them, it doesn't rise to the level of criminality. So it's kind of
0: like just making suggestions.
2: Exactly, I'm calling you, you're, you're a public official, I'm another public official, I'm just asking you to do your job and find fraud that we think is already out there, almost that this was a good faith ask, that Trump truly believed that there was fraud and he wasn't asking Brad Raffensperger to do anything illegal.
0: You've said that this investigation started with the phone call, but then it expanded.
2: How? Well, the DA noted early on in this letter that she'd sent to the governor and the secretary of state asking them to preserve evidence, when she talked about potential crimes that that might have been committed, she kind of tipped her hand a little bit into what she was looking at. One of the uh, state laws that she mentioned might have been broken was false statements to a governmental body, which To us, we immediately thought back to testimony that Trump's former attorney Rudy Giuliani had given to the Georgia Senate. This was back in December of 2020. This was when he debuted surveillance footage of State Farm Arena in Atlanta.
0: This is the footage where Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were said to have been passing something back and forth and stuffing ballot boxes, which was not true, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And Rudy Giuliani called that a smoke, smoking gun evidence for election fraud. He, he meant he compared them to drug dealers passing around dope. Uh, but it quickly turned out, you know, state and federal officials, Republicans, looked into these claims and they quickly came back and said, hey, there are no merits to those claims. The, that video was heavily edited. And you know, they're calling out behavior that was perfectly normal. These suitcases full of ballots that Giuliani was alleging was smoking gun evidence. They weren't suitcases at all. Those were just ballot containers. So we knew that that was an interest of the DA. But then as we started hearing from that other witnesses were being called to the special grand jury, it became clear that it had expanded even further. We saw folks who were involved in the appointment of an alternate slate of Republican electors here in Georgia. Those folks were being called, and eventually we found out all 16 electors were were named as targets of the investigation here. We saw much later on, there was a, a whole other separate lawsuit happening over Georgia's voting system, and it helped unearth this pretty shocking evidence about a, a data breach of elections data in Coffee County, Georgia, all the way in in South Georgia, it became clear that the grand jury was looking into that as well.
0: I guess this really explains why you feel like you don't know what to expect in this moment, because so many people have been investigated for so much potential bad behavior that, sure, the president, former president could be indicted here, but like, there are a lot of other people who may be exposed as
2: well. Exactly. And I think there's a real question of strategy here in terms of what the DA wants to do here. She could completely walk away and say she doesn't want to charge anyone. I, I find that highly unlikely at this point. But there's a question of whether she wants to go narrowly tailored and maybe keep it focused on the phone call because folks I've spoken to still think that's the most open and closed part of this investigation, the easiest thing to be able to get charges on because we have the recording. It's not just people describing the phone call. But then she could choose to go much more broad and expansive, but potentially a riskier strategy by going with RICO, the racketeering laws. And she could pull in many people into that, potentially dozens of people. Although I'm also finding a a super large racketeering case kind of unlikely as well.
0: In January, there started to be signs that the special grand jury was wrapping up its work. Can you tell me about the court hearing you witnessed? I think it was January 24th. Fannie Willis was there, right?
2: Yeah, she she came in and she really hadn't spoken much about this investigation in a couple of months. She had been criticized heavily by Republicans and particularly the lawyers of folks who had been implicated as part of this. Target's potential targets of the investigation, and they had complained that she'd been way too loosey-goosey in her comments to the press, in her court filings, and what she was disclosing there. But so she'd been under a ton of criticism for that. So we really hadn't heard her talk much about this investigation for the last six months or so. So she came to the podium and, you know, said quite a bit. She said decisions are imminent in this investigation in terms of potential indictments. She mentioned future defendants, which is what makes me think that she's leaning very heavily toward indicting folks. She did not say who those future defendants might be. And she also argued that she wanted to keep the special grand jury's final report, which as I mentioned is expected to include the group's findings as well as likely recommendations for charges. She wants to keep that private for now so that she can make the decisions she wants to make in terms of indicting people.
0: The high stakes of her investigation have put Fonnie Willis in a constant spotlight. During that last hearing, there was this one moment that fueled days of speculation, though in any other case it might have slipped right by. It all started when D.A. Willis was caught on a hot mic.
2: One of the DAs deputies asks for a moment to confer with with DA Willis, and he he huddles with her, and you hear the DA whisper to him, not realize that the mic is picking, picking all of this up. Future defendants. She says the future of defendants Trump, and then kind of stops herself, and she tells she tells her deputy not to use the word Trump. Now I. My thought is she was using the word Trump more as a verb, not to describe Trump himself. Like the the rights of the defendant supersede. Exactly. But it goes to show how delicate the state of things are right now and just how closely watched everything is that we're picking apart every word of this. And even using a verb like Trump, I think, would would send the media into a a tizzy.
0: It's funny because you clearly know Fannie Willis a bit. And in your telling, she comes off to me as really confident and like, you know, not, not really brokering any BS, right? I guess, how, how have you seen her change, if at all, in the course of this investigation?
2: I think she's become more mindful of just how closely she's being watched. I think she knew there would always be interest because she's looking at a former president and someone as polarizing as Donald Trump. But as she's seen, every remark of hers getting picked apart, just like how we included in our story in the AJC on the front page this little hot mic about future defendants Trump. You know, we, every word, every phrase is being picked apart. And so I think she's become a lot more guarded in what she's saying. You're not seeing her out in front of the media nearly as much as she was at the beginning. And so I think it's a realization of just how important this case is and how every remark is on the record and is being picked apart.
0: Tamar Hallerman, I'm really grateful for your reporting and your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Tamar Hollerman is a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. All right, that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, keeping you informed day in, day out, the best way to show us some love is to look into our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. It gets you ad-free podcasts and full access to Slate.com. Check it out. Go on over to Slate.com slash What Next What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. He runs the ads. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.
1: This is the story of the one.